Welcome to Hadley Presents. I'm your host, Ricky Enger, inviting you to sit back, relax, and enjoy a conversation with the experts. In this episode, Hadley's Chief Program Officer, Ed Haynes, joins us to discuss strategies for self-defense. Welcome to the show, Ed. Thanks, Ricky. Very glad to be here. So glad to have you. And uh, if anyone is listening who has been with Hadley for a while, they're probably delighted that you're here to talk about self-defense because I know that you actually taught this course when Hadley had more of a focus on courses as opposed to workshops that we do now. But before we get into talking about self-defense, maybe you can just give us a bit of background about yourself, especially as it relates to uh, your experience with self-defense. Sure, Ricky. Uh, As you mentioned, I did teach a Hadley course uh, entitled Personal Safety Self-Defense Strategies for many, many years. And it was a a great topic. And uh, a lot of folks were really, really interested in it then as they are interested in, in the subject now. And um, I've also had you know, a lifelong interest at this point in martial arts, and it's a, it's a real passion for me. Wonderful. And we're happy to have you here to talk about it. And as you alluded to, this was a really popular topic when you taught it previously, and it comes up all the time even now, people asking for strategies and things like that. So why do you suppose this is so top of mind for our members or our audience? Well, you're right. It is top of mind for our members. Um, But I'll start off by saying that personal safety and self-defense is really top of mind for every person. It doesn't, no matter their level of vision. But there are a couple things uh, issues that come up for people who have recently lost vision that makes them more a little more sensitive to the issue of self-defense. The first is that sighted individuals use their vision as a self-defense strategy. Right. You're walking down the street, you're scoping out what kind of people look a little dicey, what kind of uh, alley looks a little unusual, what's going on around you. Um, so you're using your your vision a lot. So when if you lose that capacity to use your vision as a self-defense strategy and you haven't uh, learned new strategies to take its place, it naturally, you become a little more nervous and you wonder, you know, how am I going to cope? The other issue is it's something that comes up particularly in the United States is that when you recently have lost your vision, um, very commonly you've also lost the ability to drive a private vehicle. Right. And, that, you know, this comes up all the time. I used to ask uh, folks I worked with, you know, what's the most dangerous situation that you've ever been in? And 90% of the time they'd say the bus stop. You know, when when you have to use public transportation, you are constantly compelled to be in public areas where you can't control the people around you. You can't control who's going to be sitting next to you, who's going to be walking towards you. Um, you have to stay in one spot. You can't move if you feel nervous because you're waiting for transportation. You're waiting on street corners, you know, for Uber rides, um, in front of grocery stores for the paratransit. So using public transportation brings a whole new level of awareness of potentially dangerous situations. And that's something people really grapple with initially. Those are all really good points. And I'd never framed it in quite that way. When you have a personal vehicle, it feels a bit more like you have some control that now you you don't anymore. Um, so that's really interesting. You know, when I think about self-defense 
what immediately comes to mind for me are stomp down on the instep or use your fingers to go for their eyes or whatever, all (laughs) of these physical things that you might respond with. But, you know, maybe I'm not thinking about it in the right way. Is self-defense purely a physical thing or is there more to it than that? Ricky, that's a great question because, in fact, there is a lot more to it that to it than that. And in fact, self-defense really is ninety percent avoidance. Uh, you know, there's a lot of issues with employing, learning, and employing physical techniques. I'm willing to bet you and a lot of our members out there have been to seminars that teach us some basic self-defense moves, and those are perfectly legitimate and and certainly they're not unhelpful. But physical techniques. Um, with related to self-defense are just like other physical techniques. They require practice. They really require, you know, hours and hours of practice to commit to muscle memory. They really have to be automatic. So if you learn something in a seminar that you, you know, you take home, you feel reasonably confident with it. You try it out on your, one of your family members a few times. Uh, That's, that's pretty common. Um, You know, that's great. And you may remember to use that, but in, in the event of an attack, your responses have to be automatic. Most fights just last a few seconds. It's not like in the movies where people slug it out for five minutes and the hero eventually wins. And most fights end up on the ground, and that requires a whole nother skill level. So the point is really to not allow yourself to reach that level of confrontation. So what I'd really like to talk about, Ricky, today is you know the attitudes and strategies that you can employ just to stay out of harm's way. And a lot of these concepts are really based on the material from this great book called Safe Without Sight. It's by Wendy David, Carrie Colmar, and Scott McCall. And it's available on Amazon, and it's on Bard. And I'm sure we'll have uh, mentioned this in the resource notes mm-hmm. as well. But you know, I'm just going to be talking about material essentially from that terrific book. That's great. And what you said was you know, kind of a a powerful statement. Like, obviously, if it comes to a physical thing, there are all of these strategies that we can use. But ideally, you want to just not even be in the situation in the first place. So can you talk about some of those strategies for just avoiding being in that kind of confrontation? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, And uh, avoidance is really multifaceted. It sounds like a simple word, uh, you know, b- basically thinking, let's just stay away from trouble. But that's that's not what it's about. Um, avoidance really has three components, um, awareness, intuition, and boundary setting. And, you know, these may, those words may sound sort of obvious and uh, intuitive, but unless you put awareness intuition and boundary setting into real and consistent practice. They're not effective. So it takes work. Real avoidance takes building up habits and behaviors over a long period of time. You've got to be committed. Yeah, that makes sense. It's not going to be something that just automatically comes naturally to all of us. And as you said, they all do seem like pretty simple words or strategies. But if I'm thinking about them. Now I'm wondering, okay, how do I even put any of this into practice? So why don't we just break it down further? Starting with awareness, what exactly does that mean and how can you practice being more aware? Okay, great. I'd love to start with this. Um, You know, awareness has, uh, there's two parts to the awareness equation. 
The first part is being aware of everything around you. And that means living in the present, being aware of noises, smells, voices, structural and geographic elements, you know, like uh, alleys, or parks or doorways. Right. And then, you know, also being aware of changes in your environment, things, for instance, vocal tones that you don't recognize or voices or noises that suddenly get closer or suddenly get farther away, or even voices or noises that suddenly unusually stop. It's, it requires a lot of concentration. And this means reducing distractions. And things like cell phones, your Spotify list, um, and but most important of all, being aware of your environment means reducing that internal dialogue that commands our attention. And I'm talking about the, the voice we have in our head that talks about our workday, what we're going to make for dinner, what we forgot to say to a relative last week, all that stuff is stuff that diverts your attention from really uh, being aware of what's around you and really practicing awareness 100%. So there, there's a second part to the awareness issue, and that means being aware of what's coming ahead, not what's around you now, but what's going to be coming towards you or what's coming in your future. That means knowing your routes, your directions, your landmarks, possible areas of danger, things like that, knowing your neighborhood, um, knowing what personal information people have access to. Of course, you don't give strangers personal information, uh, but also be aware that, you know, potential predators may be listening in on your cell phones or your conversations. Also being aware of your own home, you know, is there something out of place or something different? So I'm not talking about paranoia, really, simply, uh, you know, just a, a consistent focus of attention, attention to what is around you now and what will be around you in the future. And I have a, there's a really famous study that was done where um, they got a, a, a bunch of seasoned predators, criminals, and played them videos of just videos of people walking down the street. And they asked them just one question. They said, which of these individuals would you target as a potential victim? It's really interesting. They all chose the same individuals. And what's even more interesting is that there was nothing, those individuals had nothing in common. There was, they didn't have gender or age or size in common, except the one thing they had in common is all the individuals that were picked out as potential victims moved in an uncertain and confused way. So when I talk about awareness, the ultimate goal then is being confident as you travel. Wow, that is a lot to take in. So you're having to think about what's around you rather than, you know, what's coming up for dinner or whatever, and think about where you're headed next and also portray that sense of confidence. Because I guess it turns out that if you look vulnerable in terms of not, as you say, you know, size or gender or whatever, but just in how you're presenting yourself, then you might be more likely to be a target. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. So it's projecting confidence and assertiveness. So the next piece of this then is intuition. And for whatever reason, I think a lot of us have been conditioned to either ignore intuition or to just put it down a little further in our priorities. We're taught to be logical and think things through, but sometimes there's that little voice that says, mm, something's not right. So how do we talk about intuition and how we can put that into practice? 
Sure, I, I'd love to. You know, intuition is a very basic and primal survival mechanism, and we don't employ it often enough. Uh, let me ask you this, Ricky. If, have you ever had a conversation with someone and the subject matter seemed, you know, innocent enough, but but it didn't feel that way? The conversation didn't feel comfortable. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, I couldn't point to anything specific, but there was just that feeling of there's more here than is on the surface. Absolutely. And then have have you ever walked into a room, like a, an office or a classroom, and just something fell off? Oh, this happens a lot. And because, yeah. again, I can't point to it that I'm thinking, well, it's all fine or whatever. But yeah, there is that feeling just the the hair might stand up a little bit or you get that little niggling feeling in the pit of your stomach. Something's not right. Yep. And that's an instinct we all have. And then, you know, finally, I bet you've heard a sound in the night at your home and suddenly woke up and went, oh, what's that? I'm, yep. You know, straight up yeah, awake. We, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's all happened to us. You know, the thing is, though, we we rarely act on these feelings because we're trained to be polite mm -hmm. and we're trained to be reasonable. Uh, Ricky, someone makes us feel uncomfortable, but, you know, we don't want to offend them. Uh, you know, yep. we tell ourselves the person, yeah, they must be harmless because they're a coworker or an acquaintance or we don't want to make a scene. You walk into a hotel room, it feels weird, but gosh, you don't want to go down to the front desk for assistance. So you tell yourself, ah, it's nothing, I'll, it's fine. And then, you know, you hear a, a noise at night and again, you, you don't want to call the police because you don't want your neighbors to see a, a police car outside your door. It's and, you, and a lot of times it is our imagination. So we say, hey, it's just my imagination. So we all know what intuition is, but here's the, the secret intuition. The, the point about intuition is that it intuition calls for a corresponding reaction. And that's really the hard part. It's taking action on that intuition. You know, if somebody makes you feel uncomfortable, even without reason, it's incumbent on you to set a boundary between you and that person that's good enough to reduce your unease. That's all you need to do. You know, if you walk into a room and it feels weird, and a classroom, an elevator, a workspace, get out. Find someone to accompany you when you go back in, even if it's an inconvenience to them. I, I trust me, it's just a minor one. And if, if you hear a noise in your home that alerts and frightens you, these are just examples. You know, it doesn't hurt to call the police. I've talked to several veteran police officers about this. They get calls like this all the time. They're used to it. They won't judge you. And they've all said to me, you know, I'd much rather get a call for a suspicious noise that results in just a false alarm than get a call about an assault. So again, intuition requires taking action. Try not to let politeness and reason get in the way of your intuition. You really have nothing to lose by taking action. Generally, we're talking about a minor inconvenience and maybe a, a minor scene with people you'll probably never meet again. Um, and then responding to your feelings, really, you what's possible is that you have your safety to gain here. Yeah. And gosh, that all just sounds so relatable. The, I don't want to make a stir. I want to be polite. So trying to put that in practice for your safety will take some effort. But as you said, you know, it's, it's well worth it so that you remain safe and maybe a little inconvenienced as opposed to the worse outcome. Absolutely. You mentioned during your talk about intuition, setting a boundary with someone as uh, one of the actions that you can take when you have that intuition. 
that doesn't come naturally to a lot of people. And I think important to define what that even means and how you would go about it. So can you talk about boundary setting? Sure. I, I'd love to. And, you know, again, this goes back to, you know, we're, most of us are taught to be polite. We're taught to, you know, not make a scene. Let's not offend others. Don't raise your voice in public. Uh, don't call attention to yourself or cause anyone any inconvenience. But sometimes these are counterproductive to boundary setting. The first principle I'd, I'd love people to take away from this podcast is, with regard to bound, boundary setting, is that everyone has the right to feel comfortable and safe at all times. That's a human right. But here's the thing. You have to be ready to assert that right. No one's going to do it for you. So if someone is taking away that essential right to feel safe and comfortable, then really the appropriate response is to defend yourself by setting boundaries. So you need to acknowledge you have the right to feel safe, and setting a boundary is maybe necessary to maintain that right. And, you know, there's different levels, Ricky, to boundary setting, but I'd like to talk about a technique that kind of helps you set boundaries, and it's about changing perspective, changing your perspective and changing the perspective of the person that's making you feel unsafe. And maybe this will help. When a person makes you feel unsafe, Stop thinking about them as a person. Change your perspective. Stop seeing them as an individual. So what happens is they change from a subject to an object. That's a little philosophical, but mainly um, what I mean by that is they no longer become an, an entity with feelings. Yeah. Yeah, right? You're, you're not required to let them share or direct the course of your interaction. You don't care what they think about you or how they feel about you. They become really just a physical barrier between you and that human right to safety. An object, really, Ricky, that's that just like any other that requires removal. Sadly, we, we know from all sorts of studies and from history, it's much easier to compel people to act with aggression toward others if they stop seeing them as fellow human beings. It just yeah. is, it, yeah. it's just the way it works. So the secret here is that any person that's acting toward you in ways that make you feel unsafe has already changed their perspective about you. They don't see you as a person. They're not taking your feelings into account. And if you don't follow suit with that change in perspective, you're going to be at a disadvantage always. And predators know this and they use this. They know you're likely to respond by being polite, by taking their feelings into consideration, and they know then they'll have the upper hand. So if they're just a boundary between you and safety, your objective is clear. It just becomes a matter of what strategy you use to remove that boundary. And once you've changed your perspective, that's almost the hardest part because most of us are taught not to do that. Then it's time to change theirs. You need to make a potential predator acutely aware that you are more than an object between them and whatever it is they're trying to accomplish. So you need to insist that your feelings and agenda will be considered and make it clear to them you're going to direct the course of interaction with them and don't let yourself be perceived as a victim. Yeah, all of this just feels like it ties in together and connects so well. So going back to being perceived as vulnerable that we talked about earlier. And if suddenly you're projecting this confidence, that's going to make that person stop and reconsider. And what a fascinating way to frame it, just to drop 
all of those things that we've been taught about civility, which are important, except if uh, your personal safety is is at stake. So, wow, this really is uh, quite a fascinating discussion. Now, if you go through all of these things and somehow none of them work, you tried avoiding, uh, you tried setting your boundaries, you you know, all of these things, and uh, still the threat is there. What happens next? What do you do? Well, you have only three options, and, and those are flight, freezing up, which is the same as complying, or fighting back. And there is no right or wrong answer here. Um, there, it all depends on who you are and what circumstances you're being confronted with. But if you're going to fight back, the first rule about fighting back is that there are no rules. You have to be willing to do whatever you can do to survive. And that means being willing to physically harm your attacker, being willing to be seriously injured in order to survive, um, and acting quickly as humanly possible. And these aren't easy decisions. It's helpful to think about this way beforehand. Because if you're not trained, if you don't have extensive training, you won't have that level of detachment that, say, a professional fighter is going to have that sort of chess match attitude where, you know, it becomes, it's not necessarily physical confrontation. It's about what move you're going to do when and, and, and looking forward into the future, right? You're not, you're not in a movie. Um, you're basically fighting for survival. So it helps though, to make yourself mad. If you're afraid, try to turn your fear into anger and really become just outraged that this person is trying to hurt you and deprive you of your safety or even your life or your future. There's no good answers to this. It all depends on the situation. But if you decide to fight back, don't hesitate to do everything you possibly, possibly can. I, I'll give you an example. I, I worked with an older gentleman who was um, actually on the ground. His assailant was kneeling over him. And this is going to sound graphic, but the, the uh, gentleman reached in his pocket, pulled out a pen and stabbed his assailant in the eye. So, uh, you know, that being said, the assailant immediately left the scene. And in fact, the police found him in an emergency room later. But I tell you this story to say that that's an example of being willing to do whatever you have to do to survive. And that means including injuring your attacker or being willing to be injured yourself. Wow. There's really so much to think about here. And a lot of it is stuff I really hadn't considered before. And what I'm coming away with here is that it does take practice. It does take thinking about things ahead of time so that you can have that muscle memory to know what to do next rather than trying to make these essential decisions on the fly, having never thought about any of it before. Um, so all of this is really, really good. Any final advice that you would leave people with? I have one last piece of advice. Never let yourself be taken to a second crime scene. If someone tells you that if you come with them, everything will be fine and you'll be safe, you can assume they're lying. People who allow themselves to be taken to a second crime scene have about a 2% chance of survival. So that would, if I could leave you with parting words, and I know it's, this is not a happy topic, but don't let yourself be taken to a second crime scene under any circumstances. So whatever it takes, scream, yell, kick, fight, anything. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Anything. Your chances of survival are greater if you do that. Thank you so much for that. And could you repeat the name of the book for if people would like some some further reading on this? And certainly we'll have it in the show notes. Sure. It's called Safe Without Sight. It's a terrific book and it's available on Bard. And I, last time I checked, it was available in, on Amazon. And there's another terrific book as well called The Gift of Fear. That's also available on Amazon. I'm sure on Bard as well. A terrific book. And that deals a lot with the issue of intuition. So uh, either of those books, I highly recommend. Excellent. And we will have links to those in the show notes. Ed, thank you again for just sharing a lot of these things that, again, on the surface uh, feel kind of simple, but there's a lot to think about. And I know this is going to be so informative for people. Well, I really appreciate you having me on to talk about this topic. It's an important one. Indeed. Thank you so much. Thanks. Got something to say? Share your thoughts about this episode of Hadley Presents or make suggestions for future episodes. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at podcast at hadleyhelps.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at hadleyhelps.org. Or leave us a message at 847-784-2870. Thanks for listening.